Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey, Elk Shape Podcast, me, Dan the Fitness Man. As you're listening, I am, uh, where am I? I'm over in like one of the Dakotas chasing deer with a bow. And uh, getting ready for late season whitetails in Washington. But nothing real crazy, just uh, hanging tight, doing these podcasts and working on all the elk shape camps and uh, the online program as well. So let's get into today's podcast. We're going to interview a guy from Washington State who you've never heard of because he doesn't have a social media account, doesn't have a Facebook, doesn't have an Instagram. He's killed three elk so far this year at the time of this recording, and he had one more hunt left. His name is Trevor Trambley. He is a blue-collar lineman, and he's a very successful elk hunter. I brought him on because I think he's super relatable. He juggles real life and works his tail off so he can hunt his tail off. And I think that's just like all of us. We're going to learn about his elk hunting learning curve, his really amazing season he had this year, and some of the things he's doing to create success in the hunting world. Now... Let's talk about elk shape business. So we have the first camp coming up in January, the 24th, 25th, 26th. We had a discount code. It expired. It was a hundred bucks off. I'm going to go ahead and relaunch it for the month of November. So if you use the code flash F L A S H, you're going to get a hundred bucks off early bird pricing. That's going to knock basically 200 bucks off what we charged last year. Uh, with the subject matter expert coming to this camp for sure, we've inked Ryan Lampers. Now he does his own camps as well, but they're they're definitely a different vibe. Ours is a lot more 
Uh, I'm going to get it out of you as far as it comes to the physical and mental. I'm going to really try to bring that to the forefront as well as lifestyle. I want to shape mold your effort and I want to create a roadmap for every participant for 2020 season on exactly what they suck at the most and figure out how to tackle those weaknesses head on. We go really deep into technical archery. So I would advise those that aren't archery hunters to not come to camps. I'm, I hate to, to, to handcuff myself, but really, truly, to get the most out of a camp, you got to have a bow. And if you're new to bow hunting, it's even better because we're going to start by teaching you the right way how to tune a bow, how to shoot a bow, how to do perfect practice, and then how to integrate shooting and training together so you have reps at a high heart rate and shooting under duress, as well as mindset, goal setting, and then obviously we're going to go deeper into elk tactics, especially public land. Look, if you're listening to this podcast, you need to understand we're at a tipping point with elk hunting. It is popular. Everybody knows there's only really two states you can go to over the counter, Colorado and Idaho, and those are going to be selling out year after year going forward, mark my words. So you're going to have more and more limited opportunities. You're going to have to make huge steps and take major advantage of the time you have to elk hunt because you will have competition. It'll be a limited. There's a lot of demand and few supply. And if you are rich, then you can buy the landowner tags and hire the guides and outfitters. And if you are not rich and you're more blue collar, you're going to have to really learn how to go deeper, further, and hunt smarter on public land. You got to find areas that are untouched. You got to find ways to access public ground, ways that other people have never thought of by crossing rivers and finding main roads that people drive by. You're going to have to be really creative and then on your elk calling, it's going to have to be flawless. You're going to have to be able to execute a good plan and know how to make really good sounds. We cover all of that at Elk Shape Camp. I want to sell out this camp, so if you're tired of me talking about it, I'll apologize, but I haven't sold it out yet. I want to get this first camp sold out. This is the only one we're doing in Spokane. Spokane is my favorite location. It's my backyard. You'll see the gym that I built. You'll see my pro shop, the archery shop, my archery coach, my personal archery coach, and you'll go through everything that I do for the off season. And then we'll travel to other states and you can look up that on the Elk Shape website. We are on Instagram, we are on YouTube, we are on Facebook. Make sure that you subscribe to those, get on the newsletter. If you check the link in my bio under Instagram, you could subscribe to, basically I'll send out a couple emails a month and they're not salesy. They're usually packed with information on how to make you better at elk hunting, how to make you better at life. Let's get to today's podcast. Let's thank our sponsors, Vortex Optics, OnX Hunt, Kenneth Trek Boots, Matthews Archery, Grim Reaper Broadheads, Boning Archery, Easton Archery, Sika Gear, Backcountry E-Bikes, XO Mountain Gear, Delayed Gratification, Hard Work, Discipline, and Being Accountable to Yourself. Without further ado, this is Trevor, and this is the Elk Shade Podcast. Hey, what's up? Dan the Fitness Man doing another podcast today, Elk Shape. We are sitting down, Trevor Tremblay. He is out of Washington State. You know what? I don't even know him that well. And you guys probably don't either. He doesn't have social media and he's extremely blue collar and successful at elk hunting. Like the perfect candidate for this podcast. Trevor, what up, man? Hey, Dan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, you referred to me by somebody on social, and they told me you didn't have social and that you were a killer. And I was like, yep, that's the ingredients for the kind of people I want on here. How come you don't have social media? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. I had uh, Facebook when I met my 
my wife and you know I, I kept it for a little while and then I ended up just kind of dissolving it eventually and I ended up, I have Facebook now or I have a uh, Snapchat now but that's all I got so I yep. just uh, I just get out there and and hunt and send pictures of my friends I guess and apparently they they get a hold of you so. <laughs> <laughs> the old Snapchat don't have that probably never will and it sounds dangerous to me when you can send videos that disappear or something sounds it sounds oh, like yeah. like the and the teenagers are got to be all over that I know I probably would back in the day when I was in high school so you don't have social you're a lineman you are a blue collar lineman climbing poles working yeah, on dude, I, overhead yeah. on power lines all the time what how long have you been doing that yeah I've been doing that for about 14 years now I actually started when I was 21 and traveled all over the Northwest, California. I just uh, got through an apprenticeship, which took like five years to get through. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I got through that, yeah, then <clears throat> ended up finally settling down up here in uh, Northwest Washington. So I live just east of Seattle in Carnation, Washington. It's been good, man. I work for Puget Energy right now. I've been there for about the last year as far as in this uh, in this position, but... Uh, yeah, it's been good. It's been good. I don't know what your experience has been like, but my fa- uh, my brother-in-law is a lineman. I remember when he was an apprentice, and it was a long time until he became a journeyman. And, dude, you kind of have – there's like – I just don't know how to say it nicely. You kind of go through some crap as an apprenticeship. Like you just are kind of a grunt, and you just kind of have to take it. Was that similar for you? Oh, big time. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not the easiest trade I feel like to, uh, you know, to get through, but once you get through it, it's actually a great job. Once you become a journeyman, it's really nice, but the apprenticeship, it does suck. It sucks pretty bad for a while. I mean, they tell you where to go, when to go, what to do. You really have no say in, in where you're going to be at for about, you know, three to five years. So it's kind of tough, but, uh, it's totally worth it. And, and then it, really does give you a lot of freedom once you become a journeyman man i i told you earlier uh i got five weeks off to hunt this year and it's been it's been pretty awesome to be able to have that kind of freedom there's not many jobs where you could take that much time off and and be able to hunt that much so that was actually my goal it's funny when i first got in the apprenticeship i told my dad i was like you know all i want to do is become a journeyman and then i'm going to take the whole fall off i'm just going to get after it and he's like yeah, that's not going to happen. You're going to get married, have bills. You're just not going to be able to, you're not going to do that. And it's literally taken me 13 years to be able to get to that point where I can take a decent amount of time off. But, uh, you know, finally, and I've heard you talk about too, like your uh, finances, get your finances in order and be able to, to make that happen, to make hunting a priority in your life. So that's kind of where I've ended up, you know, working toward, but it just took a long time to get there. No, I I agree, and I think time is uh, an ally. If you're, especially if you're a bow hunter, there's no question. But what do you think about maybe not taking? I wrote this in an article once. I'd rather take a three or four day stretch and just hit it hard in a good area, versus take like a ten to fourteen day stretch off in an okay area and hit it hard. What's your thoughts on like? kind of more intensity less is more so to speak when it comes to hunting yeah no i totally i totally see what you're saying um i feel like the way that i think that you and i kind of both hunt as far as busting your ass and and just getting after it i mean we'll do 10 
to 12 miles a day like every other bow hunter, you know, the, that hunts hard. And I think that's only sustainable for maybe four days, for me at least, for maybe four days. And I need either to sleep in one day or to take a day off or whatever it is. But three to four days, like you said, is actually perfect. And you can get in there, maybe divvy for a couple of days if you need to. But a 14 day, I, I do know a guy actually that took three weeks off this year and hunted the same exact location the entire time. And he wasn't successful. I mean, he took a lot of time off and he, he invested a lot of money and time into this one location and it didn't pan out at all for him. I mean, he got into a couple elk, but having that much time uh, is is good, but you need to make the most of it as far as maybe get into a good area and and know what you're doing and, and just bust it out real quick, like you said. Well, I like the guys that take time off and go for it like that, but I've always scratched my head. I've seen this year in, saw it again this year. Like there's Like I never really hunt the same drainages day after day i like to go in get in there shake it up a little bit move the earth around and then i like to bounce out to another spot even if it's really lit say the bulls are screaming say it's a hundred plus bugle day like i just don't want those elk feeling any sort of pressure for me they're already getting enough from wolves and other hunters but i like mm-hmm. there's one area that was really good and i just see the same guys sleeping in the same tent in the same spot and every time I go back in there, like maybe every sixth day or whatever, they're there and they're there the whole month. And I'm just wondering, man, I'm like, I've never seen them pack an elk out in my entire, in oh, this wow. one area. I've never seen them have blood on their hands. And I'm wondering if they're <laughs> doing the same thing that your buddy did, where it's just like, yeah, you're afraid to leave elk to go find other elk, but you've been pressuring the same elk. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it was actually funny that you say that as far as changing areas uh, all the time, because one of my buddies this year, I told him what I did opening day, and then he's like, oh, so you going back in there the second day? I was like, nope. And he's like, yeah, you never do the same hunt twice. You never go in the same place twice. And that's for Roosevelt's is what uh, that hunt was. But, mm-hmm. dude, I'm all about going to different places every day. And, and even if I do get into an L, you know, I'll usually give it a day maybe to rest, uh, especially on the Roosevelt's. So I'll give it a day or two. And let him calm down. And then I'll go back and I'll hit it again if I know that elk's in there. But I'm definitely about switching up spots and finding new elk that aren't pressured that are going to call back. Um, as far as, you know, the real quick, the Roosevelt's, <clears throat> when you're going in, I do a ton of calling because it's so thick in there. You can't really see anything. So if you're in there bugling the same little drainage every day, it's it's just not going to be effective. No doubt. What do you think about the elk over there? I haven't hunted rosies. I feel like I would do all right because I'm just used to hunting timbered brush bulls where if they're not talking or if they're not responding, I'm not killing. Over there, do you, are you worried about introducing a new bugle to an area? Uh, do, you, do you feel like you have maybe just that day to introduce this bugle and if you were to come back the next day they're a little wary of that same bugle you know i wouldn't say that's the case too much i i'm really not worried about it because it is so thick that i mean they can't even hear half the time when you're bugling. i think you got to be really close anyways to get them to hear it you know they're so they're so aggressive as far as where they live at i for, for instance i got one story real quick we dove down to this canyon, me and my buddy did about three years ago. And I, I just bugled one time and we didn't hear anything. So we dove down a little bit more into this creek bed 
and we're coming up out of the creek bed and my buddy's like stop 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 looks up and there's a bull like five yards above us looking down on us right so my buddy draws back and he shoots as the bull whirls and missed it so this bull saw us we got a shot off at this bull it bails back up the canyon and we just follow it and we're calling i mean we're we're bugling cow calling and he's chuckling the whole time i mean he's kind of fired up we push him back into this spot and he didn't want to move anymore like we literally like almost cornered him because that was his home he wasn't going to go anymore and we ended up killing that bull just by we called a bunch and we just kept pressuring him they're just so aggressive that they unless you really i mean you really got to spook them sometimes to blow them out you just described the tactic that is my probably my go-to um, in Idaho brush country where it's a little bit bigger, steeper than where you're at, but it's so it hurts a little bit more, but it's still like, you know, this a mile in the brush is different than a mile in anywhere, Wyoming, Montana, anywhere where there's just bigger country with less brush. A brush in the mile is terrible, but oh, I've always, rough. I've always had a lot of success in pushing bulls with the bugle, and mm-hmm. they retreat. And I just, as long as they'll bugle back, I'll push and push, and they're gonna get to a spot where they don't. A lot of times, it's been like a road, like they don't want to cross a road, oh, or sure. it's like a hot brush field where there's no timber. It's middle of the day, and they, it's just too they. They'll finally turn their ground, and usually they'll turn their ground when they've kind of ran out of real estate of their home turf, and they want they find like a bench or something flat where they can either get the higher ground or at least be on your level, which is super important when you're trying to get in on elk is being on their level. I love that tactic. This year it didn't work. There was one drainage where I tried to get it to work on this one herd bull. He wasn't a giant. He was just really heavy, like a two, 280 bull, and he had actually – a pretty good sized herd, like probably 12 cows. I didn't see any calves. They've all probably been eaten by wolves, but he had 12 cows. And, and I think three different times I'd put them to bed and I would like wait for like 12 o'clock. And then I'd sneak in and kind of slow play, kind of get them fired up. But I didn't, I didn't want to play the game, Trevor, where I just do these little wimpy bugles. I wanted to, I wanted to pick a fight. So I'd get him pretty worked up and then I'd come in hard at him and he'd hook his cows and he'd go maybe over a finger, hold his ground. I'd get over there. Obviously elk are really fast. And I figured his cows would just get like, you know, a lot of times the cows just be like, dude, we're not moving again. And then they're like, well, I've had bulls like, all right, I'll hold my ground. And I've also had bulls be like, fine, ladies, I'm out. And then they just leave their girls right there. That's the worst. Because then you're that stuck is with all a these. Bummer. Yeah, and I've had that happen multiple times. But I pushed him. He went over two fingers, was right on him, and then he shut up. They slipped out. I did the same program three days later. I got him to bugle back and forth probably six, seven times. A couple more fingers. I'm like, by the third time, I'm like, he's gonna turn. And I got him oh, yeah. really fired up. This took like this was like a week later. I got him. And it takes a lot of patience to wait for these elk to bed and wait for the thermals and wait for midday and you know the cows are bedded. But that's kind of the ingredients you need. And I finally got them really fired up. And then a giant like 340, 350 bull came in and like Mm -hmm. stole his cows 
and he wouldn't bugle anymore. And then that herd bull pushed him away. And I was just like, man, you <laughs> got to be kidding me. But I, after all that work, I love what you're talking about. Like that is a fun tactic, but what other kind of tactics do you guys do that is different for those rosies in Washington that maybe you wouldn't do in other States? Yeah, I know. As far as like the terrain, um, it is pretty mild. So we're able to ride bikes a lot, um, out logging roads and we can actually glass, you know, there are places you get up high and you can glass clear cuts and, and locate elk. Uh, it's super tough to, to get in there and kill them in the clear cuts. Like this year, the bull I killed, we were actually sneaking up a, a valley and just down a creek bed and getting away from people. So we got up in there and we ended up just smelling this bull. You could just smell him. We were just right in close on him. Uh, didn't hear him, see him, nothing, but got in there and I set my buddy up about 20 yards in front of me. I got back behind and I did some cow calls, some raking. I'd say raking, you know, I, I know you guys do a lot of raking with the, with the Rockies too, but raking for Roosevelt's is super effective. So I pretty much always incorporate that into my calling setup. Um, did some raking, did just a little, a little wimpy bugle. And this bull came just kind of circling around my buddy. Um, he came in down, ended up circling all the way down below me. And that's how I was able to, to take him. But dude, we do, we do, we mix it up a lot. I mean, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of glassing in the clear cuts just to find them. And then we do a lot of calling. I, I don't know that I've ever killed a, a Roosevelt bull without calling because Oh, it's yeah. just so effective to uh, to get in there, and they're like I said, they're aggressive. If you could, you can bugle at them, and they're not gonna. They're usually not gonna run away. I mean, I don't know what it is, but it's so thick, and it, it just doesn't scare them. So I do a lot of calling, a lot of raking, and I get super aggressive, and and I just do every circumstance is different. You know, every every hunting situation is gonna be unique, and you really have to adapt. I think people just. It, the more experience that they have, the more effective they are because they've had so many different uh, variations of, of hunting circumstances come into play. So I think raking's legit. I, I know that I will rake more times than I will bugle. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, that just seems to be the only thing that really can, like, I don't know if these elk are just tired of hearing these off, like, uh, synthetic bugles they've never heard before because most elk know each other. They, they, they kind of got each other figured out. They've summered together. The bachelor bulls, they've 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 smelled each other, and then you introduce this synthetic bugle. On we're talking pressured right. elk here, guys. We're talking really truly public land, high pressure over the counter elk hunting. Raking almost might be superior to, to bugling when you're in tight, especially if you want to get a bull really worked up and pick a fight. Now, two questions for you on your on your logging country in there. So you said gates, riding bikes, are e-bikes allowed? And my next question is, when you say you're glassing clear cuts, is that only effective for like maybe the first hour of daylight and then they're in timber? Yeah, so the e-bikes are actually illegal where I hunt. Uh, I Boo. think maybe state land you might be able to get with that, but the private timber company lands don't allow the e-bikes as far as I'm aware of. I did see a couple back in there this year, so they're just breaking the law, but, you know, that's how it goes. So, And then the other question was the hour, first hour of daylight? Yeah, so like glass, you said you're glassing clear cuts. Like when I hunt logging country, rarely will I see elk ever in a clear cut. And if I do, it's like for a hot minute, first light. Yeah, 
So definitely preseason. Obviously, if you're just going in there scouting, they're pretty thick. They haven't pressured yet, so they're out in the clear cuts uh, later in the day and then earlier in the evening. I think the honestly, the clouds I've noticed over the years that if it's a cloudy day, they're way more prone to stay out in the clear cuts later. Even if it is hunting season, they'll be out there an hour after daylight. And yeah, that's that's typically it's typically a, a morning first light and and last light type of deal to be able to find them in the clear cuts. But it's a good way of of locating at least then you can see if you can see where they're going to bed in the timber man that's that's pretty much where we where we kill most of them at is just wait for them to get in that timber and then just get a, a pretty aggressive with them and obviously get the wind right that's a no-brainer but it's it's huge so now how far do they travel once they hit timber are they going to run out of timber i mean how logged is this country yeah it's super logged i mean there's there's a lot of a lot of timber or a lot of uh, pickets there but they'll go usually not very far dude it's so thick they don't have to go far i mean they there's some of the we call it reprod where it's like 10 to 20 year old uh, trees and i mean it's super thick in there if, if they get in there they can go 100 yards and you'll never find them i don't know how they survive the rifle season muzzleload season archery i mean there's all general tags there and just unlimited tags and they still survive because it is it is so thick so that's kind of what you're dealing with Dude, I think that's pretty um, standard for logging country is once they hit reprod, you're kind of screwed. And if you're in areas where it's not reprod yet, but they've planted, look out. Is this a pay-to-play type logging country that you're hunting in? Yeah, so actually I haven't done that yet. There are a lot of places nearby where I hunt that that are the – you got to buy the permit or whatever. And some of them are unlimited permits. Some of them are, are limited permits. Uh, they range from like fifty dollars to three, four, or five hundred dollars. Really, you can, lease, you can even lease some of the property. And actually, once you start that lease, it's yours for the rest of the time as long as you keep releasing it every year. So there's some of that, dude. It's it's actually getting more difficult to find places to hunt, and then there's more hunting pressure, and it's just it's not like it was. Also, there's a uh, thing called this hoof rod i don't know if you heard of that hoof rod yeah i have what is going on yeah it's a bummer dude there used to be a lot more elk honestly and that hoof rod's taken down a lot of the herds just wiping them out i think we might have you know just from my observation i would say maybe a third of the elk that we used to have maybe 15 20 years ago so this hoof rod is basically a bacterium that they're 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 catching and they're not able they could kill it if they had antibiotics or something what is yeah, they actually, I don't think that they've found a cure for it, but yeah, it is some kind of bacteria that gets into their hooves and they, I don't even think they know for sure how they got it originally. They speculate that it might've been like the herbicides they use in the tree, the timber company land Oh yeah, for uh, just, you know, killing weeds or whatever they do with the trees there. But yeah, it's a bummer. It's uh, it's been pretty frustrating to see that many elk die off and they're out there limping in the fields and just struggling so dude that is just yeah I've, it's definitely on my radar i mean if you live in washington you've heard of it and if you're on the wet side like you are i mean you're living in it so a third is pretty significant and washington is a tough state to hunt for out-of-staters because you can't really put in for our draws without committing to an actual tag and the odds are already dog shit, especially if you're even a resident. I was looking up draw odds before we got on, and <laughs> I was actually laughing that I 
even put in because I have less than 1% chance to draw most, you know, quality oak tags in the state of Washington. Yeah. And how many points do you have? I drew in 2011. I drew okay. Southeast Washington in the blues. Oh, sure. And I think I pulled that tag with 10 or 11 points. And yeah. I, so I have probably eight or eight or nine points now. And I have like less than 1% chance of drawing anywhere down there. And I was even looking at some of the, the West side. So for guys sure. listening, Washington divides their state in half. So you, you cannot uh, go hunt the Cascades or the Rosies if you select an East side tag. And I live on the East side, so I usually don't, but I have hunted over there. It's a tough state for non-residents and it's tough for residents. We just have a high density population, Seattle area, Vancouver area, yeah. Olympia, just a lot of people so there's there's pretty good hunting numbers in there and then have you have you listened to much about um washington's governor jay inslee kind of saying hey fishing game i don't want you guys using lethal methods anymore to take out problematic wolves that are killing off cattle we're no i guess we're still not at objective so there's still no hunting seasons on wolves over here yeah i actually haven't heard him talk about that fortunately um (laughs) i just I can't deal with that wolf situation, man. It's it's getting worse all the time. Well, basically, I, mean, I know in Idaho it's terrible, but it's they're definitely moving this way too, obviously. So. Well, they need to have more established breeding pairs on your side of the state before they will allow hunting. That's where we're at. Wow. And so they want yeah. to establish them in the St. Helens area. And oh, of course they do. They're going to do that by probably planting them there. I think they don't need. Honestly, I think the wolves are very amazing at dispersing naturally especially as each year goes by those litters they spread out they start their new packs things like that so but yeah for those who didn't know washington's got i don't know how many wolves they'll say but a lot and we don't have a hunting season on they're still technically listed over here for whatever reason even though neighboring states besides oregon all have the state management level which so yeah we don't have to go down that road too far we, we already <laughs> talked about wolves on a couple of podcasts ago with the foundation for wildlife management uh, you got to check that episode out if you haven't it is i think it's a must listen for for elk hunters especially guys like you and me let's say we live in washington you don't draw a tag idaho's always been my backup plan for just awesome over-the-counter hunting with the increased right. population of bow hunting i mean those tags sold out this year before the season started that's unprecedented and then they're going to redu- they're going to reduce the amount of tags next year and they're going to increase the price here next year or the year after which is fine with me they're, they were, they were they were they were definitely under market value i think a, a non-resident elk tag for idaho currently was 416 before you get your license yeah that's great. pretty under that's pretty under market i i could appreciate how them they should probably at least you know, look at the comps in the neighboring era states and at least bring it up a little bit. But, uh, you know, non-residents are footing the bill in every state, probably except for ours because we don't have yeah. hardly any. But for, for most states that are good, they, they, non-residents is where the, the budget is created. Um, I know they got a lot of my money this year. <laughs> all the all the non-resident states for me basically they so, they definitely suck up a bunch of a bunch of money that's for sure and it's not going to get cheaper friends so you really have to kind of either figure out a good strategy to save up for like an every other year or every three years maybe go in and 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 hunt out of state 
or get a side hustle or eliminate some debt because uh, hunting is not getting any cheaper. And that's just the reality. So we'll have to talk about how you budget your money. But first, let's go into your season. You started in Washington. You were the caller. You called in a bull. He slipped around your shooter. You smoked him. Then where'd you head to? Yeah, so that was a that was a good time. Um, we, he was actually four miles back behind a, a closed gate, so we had a good pack out there and, and uh, got him all taken care of. And then, so that was Washington first week of the season. I think that was day five. Um, and then we ended up going. Me and my brother went to Idaho. Uh, we actually went to the southeast corner of Idaho there, and uh, we'd never hunted there before. My brother's actually an Idaho resident. We each actually got separate uh, separate tags. It just worked out that way. So we had my brother's unit first and did about four days in there. Kind of like we were talking earlier where you just hit it hard for three or four days. And we did, we probably put on 50 miles in that time just on our feet, just getting after it. Got into two bulls, uh, didn't get any shots off or anything. And we ended up packing up from there and going to hunt my area after that. Um, went in to a brand new spot we'd just seen on Onyx, basically. And uh, there was a decent amount of hunting pressure in there, but we were able to get back in about five miles. And I was just bugling the whole way out, just trying to locate, bugle, you know, find a bull. And we ended up getting in on one bull, and he took off just straight up the mountain. So we followed him all the way up there. He crested the ridge, went down to the other side in the drainage over there. And it was just a bugle fest. I think it was maybe September 17th 18th right in there and yeah they were going off in that in that valley so we didn't really know which bull to go after um we ended up going after a couple different bugles and then i actually snuck up on one one uh hunter in there just there were just so many bugles going off i didn't realize it was a hunter but anyways we ended up seeing this bull a six point across this ridge across from us about maybe 300 yards and he went up in the timber so we were able to sneak down and, and kind of follow him up in there. Um, he ended up going in some wallows up top on the side of this hill. Uh, my brother stayed back, and I snuck in, kind of did the the stealthy sneak in there while he's bugling. Just he kept him distracted um, for a while. I, t- I tried to get to full draw one time, and he kind of caught some movement from me. So he ended up circling down below me and tried to get our wind, I think but I caught him at 50 yards and uh, was able to put a good arrow in him. And he only went about 50 yards or so. So that was my first, that was my first six point bull that, that I never got before. So it was pretty exciting. Dude, that is pretty awesome. I mean, how did you, so obviously you and your brother had different zones and for those listening, Idaho, correct. Idaho kind of divides the States up into zones. Each zone will have a handful of units that you're allowed to hunt. So you guys were obviously in two separate zones where you couldn't hunt his, he couldn't hunt yours. How did you guys know to pull the plug on his zone? What was like the final straw where you're like, this ain't working and we got to try something new. Yeah. So we just kind of implement our strategy uh, in that area of just hit a different drainage every day. And so the first day we went in, we actually bivvied in and dropped a little camp there and and we did get into two bulls back in there, um, but man, there wasn't much sign. There just wasn't much happening. Um, we couldn't get him to, to bugle again the next day, so we bailed out of that, uh, went to two different drainages the next two days, and we didn't see or hear an elk either one of those days, and we put on minimum 10 miles a day 
actually got in on five bears on a carcass in there and uh, weren't able to, to get a shot because my brother had a tag and everything. But, but yeah, there was uh, apparently more predators than elk in that yeah. area. So yeah. we just kind of, we just kind of figured, you know what, let's just shuffle the deck and, and switch it up and try to get in on some elk. And so we decided to go, you know, and our plan was to come back to that, that area there after, uh, if I was able to tag out or whatever, but just, just a morale booster, honestly, you know, just to see some elk was what we needed. So, so when you guys were looking on, on X, I imagine probably from your brother's base camp, like, do you remember what, what things caught your attention where you're like, let's go check this area out in my zone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think most people are familiar with the the layer on Onyx where it's like the roadless area. So we kind of, we like to use that and kind of get an idea of where maybe the soft, I, I call them soft areas where the elk are going to be kind of pushed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use that. And then a lot of the, the north facing timber slopes where they're going to be bedding. Um, but honestly, what I use mostly is just, just wherever I can get away from people on the general tags that's that's kind of key if i can get away from people and i can and i can locate bugle if i can find elk then i can hunt them after that but it's just finding elk is the hardest part man it is i feel like that's the number one question i get i like what you said you just got to use the roadless layer and you got to figure out where those elk are going to get pushed the mm-hmm. most elk just don't like hanging out with people like not at all like they have almost like a zero tolerance yes there's exceptions but especially in those OTC units, man, like it's all about how do you get away from people. And the thing that I've found that's helped me the most, including this year, was having camp in my backpack so I didn't have to like be committed to coming back to the truck. Sure. That was a game changer. And I didn't start out that way, Trev. Honestly, uh, I usually don't need to do that in some of my usual haunts. I can get in and get out. Like, I, But I had to actually start i think i spent probably five or six nights in a tent this year which is probably more than usual for idaho and it was simply because i was tired of wasting a, one of my precious commodities time and energy oh yeah traveling so far but i had to get away from people and that's kind of adaptations probably a bow hunter's number one asset you have to adapt to the scenario now when you guys got that bull worked up and then he, he definitely left and peaced out do you think, I mean, he had to have had cows, right? Uh, you talking about in my brother's unit the first day we were in there? No, I'm talking about your six point, your first six point ever. Oh, no, he actually did. He was a, a satellite bull. So Really? Yeah, he was a satellite bull because we saw, we ended up seeing, you know, a few satellite bulls in there. That There was a herd down in the bottom and we could hear him growling in there, but that other guy was kind of working that bull. And we just didn't really want to mess with that situation. So yeah, there was there was a bunch of satellites in there, and then there was a, a nice herd bull. We actually talked to the guy that saw the herd bull, and he said he was you know maybe a three twenty bull or something, but he was he was bigger than the one I got. So right on. So when you got that satellite bull, like you kind of you guys kind of pushed him a little bit. Did you have to wait for the dust to settle, or were you guys super aggressive and got right back on him? You know, we pretty much just kept pushing, man. We just kept pushing in on on every bugle that we could. Uh, could hear <laughs> just getting aggressive because i mean it it was relatively thick in there to where you you could move around and not get caught um there was a few openings but no we pretty much just kept on picking a bugle and chasing it and if it didn't work out we moved on to the next one 
was this bull pretty cued in on your guys you guys coming towards him could he hear you guys coming or were you guys getting as tight as you could and then trying to set up no we we usually don't bugle like in this circumstance where we saw him go up into this pocket and he was just bugling up in there by himself so we did sneak all the way within 100 yards before we let out any call i mean he didn't hear see smell us or anything until my brother started bugling and uh, and then i was I had already moved up. I mean, I was probably 50, 60 yards from that bull before my brother even let out a sound. So, Oh, my gosh. And so did it take long for him to come? Yeah, it actually probably took maybe 10, 15 minutes. And like I said, I was just kind of – I'm super great. If he's raking or if he's bugling, if he's doing anything to distract him, I'm moving. So yes. I moved in as much as I could. I got tight in there. And like I said, I tried to draw, and he did spot a little bit of movement. But he didn't know what I was, and then he was just circling below us there to get to get the wind on that uh, on my brother, basically. So when he did that, dude, and, and you know what I've learned too, I feel like the successful dudes out there are the ones that can close the deal in that last one to two hundred yards. Everybody can hear a bugle. Everybody can can walk up towards an elk, but to get into that 100, 200 yards and actually close the deal is it's tough, man. And it definitely is one of those things that you just got to practice and just, and get out there and, and uh, have a bunch of different experiences because I, I move around a lot. I mean, if, if that bull is distracted, I'm moving and I'm getting in position to where I can get a shot. If I'm within 50 yards, I'm within range. I just need to get a, an angle on that bull. So. I think this year, especially, I probably got busted a little bit more than I did. <laughs> in years past and I was just being pretty damn aggressive. I'm not worried about making noise and I am if a bull does if he's if he starts his bugle, I'm moving even if I'm close cuz I can, you know, they're not going to hear you. Absolutely. And they're not going to see you when they bugle and when they're raking, they're definitely not going to see you. And that's those are the times to get in tight. So I love what you're saying there. Now you guys once you got your bull Tell us about breaking it down. How did you guys how did you guys work together to get that thing off the mountain and did you go back to your brother's unit? Yeah, so man, we've done, you know, we've done quite a few bulls and it's probably an hour, hour and a half long process. I mean, it's a it's a lot of work. Um basically we just skin out one whole side, just skin out the side and then we take start start taking quarters off. Obviously do the gutless method. Um I just got four game bags and we just put a quarter in each and then the neck meat. Um and the back straps go in the front quarter bag. We get, a lot of times we'll bone out the uh, the front shoulder too, just to make it a little bit easier there. Mm-hmm. But dude, yeah, it's a it's a process. So we got that broke down, packed back the the one night. You know that night we packed half it back to the truck, and then got in there the next day. It was five miles back to the truck, so we did I don't know twenty four miles in the two days or something like that, but. Um, yeah, we were pretty wiped out. So my brother had, he had an Oregon tag and he had that Idaho tag and he was so bummed about the, uh, the Idaho situation there with, uh, not seeing any elk that he's like, I, I just want to go to Oregon. So we actually bailed, went to Oregon for a couple days, hunted our butts off. It was the last two days of season. We didn't end up getting anything in Oregon there, but, uh, had a good time and we have been successful there before. So we had a chance, but uh, it was a little bit of a struggle with, with me and him on, on where to go. Cause I just wanted to go back to the Idaho unit and just, 
you know, push on. And he's like, yeah, I just feel better about going to Oregon. So, and once I got it, my tag filled, then it's his hunt anyway. So, you know, I don't, did that. I've never hunted Oregon and I don't know if I would leave Idaho ever for Oregon. <laughs> right. But, I, you know, it's his hunt and sometimes hunting familiar thing. country is, you know, attractive. But hunting unfamiliar country for guys like you and me is super attractive. It's such a good test. And I just got to take a time out on our podcast to tell folks, hey, man, I'm all about bow hunting being difficult. Like, I do want it to be difficult. Now, obviously, I can make it harder. I could switch to a a recurve or traditional bow. There's lots of ways to make it harder, but regardless, we're all kind of looking for a test. Like we want some meat. We want some adventure. We're going to get that hopefully, but we also kind of want a challenge where we're tested and and kind of have to see what kind of, you know, resolve we have. When you drew your New Mexico tag, you're talking about it. Have you ever even been to New Mexico before? No, I never even been to the state before. (laughs) I mean, that's intimidating and it's really exciting. So we're going to kind of have to go through that time-wise. I need to hear how you prepared, who you called, what websites you went to. Like, how did you do your e-scouting first and foremost? Yeah, that was exciting, man. I was definitely not expecting to draw that tag. And so when the results came out, I kind of freaked out. But yeah, I, I basically started with Onyx, I would say, you know, obviously download all the maps and do that. Uh, Go hunt was kind of my my research for drawing the tag, so I use that a lot, and it's it's pretty sweet to get a general idea of of the unit. After that, I did call a biologist down there and talk to him. And of course, I don't know about most guys. I just have not had much luck with biologists. I don't know if it's just me and how I ask them or the questions I ask or. But they just all seem to give me this general, oh, yeah, there's 400-inch bulls roaming around there somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's pretty frustrating. So I just haven't had much luck with that. But I You know what I've them. had good luck with What's is that? not biologists at all. And I'm sure there's some good ones. I just never talked to one. Is And not all game wardens, but there are some damn good game wardens that, like, like for example, where I was antelope hunting this year, this game warden, there was like seven of us in camp. And we were all like 10 miles different directions. Every one of us got checked that day. That dude, oh wow, that dude was awesome. He covered all the country. And my dad is a talker, and they talked elk hunting for an hour. And my dad was blown away at this guy's knowledge. It was so next level. Wow. And uh, that, that convinced me right there that if you get a hold of the right game warden, dude, their boots on the ground. They've checked a lot of hunters, they've seen a lot of animals in the back of trucks. They know where they're coming out of. They know what kind of pressure. They know if these elk are educated, if they're pressured by wolves or people. Did you get a hold of any game wardens? No, I definitely did not. That's probably one of the mistakes that I made. That's a pro, <laughs> t- pro tip for all y'all listening. Get a hold of yeah. a good game warden. Yeah, and honestly, this was the first. So I've been putting in for New Mexico for five years. It's the first New Mexico tag I drew, but it's the first good elk tag that I've ever drawn. I mean, I've always just on a general tag. So it was definitely a learning experience. And, you know, there's some things I would do differently next time, but, you know, getting into to that hunt, as far as how I prepared, I mean, just a lot of, a lot of looking on Google earth and, and Onyx, and then doing some, uh, honestly, just Google that unit number in New Mexico for elk. And there's tons of forums that come up about it. So, so there was that. 
Um, I did get a hold of one guy on Go Hunt. I was able to just chat with him, and you know, he had the same tag, so we were kind of swapping some information back and forth. But I think I, I told you this before that uh, about three weeks before the season opened, I just was like, you know what? I don't want to screw this up. I want to have the best opportunity to get a good bull. And so I just I just went ahead and hired a guide. And I don't know. Obviously, if I was to draw that tag again, I would not hire a guide because now I know the area. But it was nice just to have him as a, a super helpful dude for knowing the area. He lived there his whole life. And he was able to put us on bulls day one. I mean, I got down there probably four days before the season opened and basically helped him scout. Um, so it was, it was really fun. And I don't know that I would, would change what I did this time, but it was an expensive lesson <laughs> to learn that, that you don't really need a guide for when you draw a super good tag, I would say. Well, that's all right, man. Like you gotta, you gotta learn and, Maybe there's, I mean, can you think of anything that that guy taught you that you didn't know about the air, about the actual elk behavior down there or something even about elk hunting that you, his take that maybe you never thought of? Yeah, you know, I think what was most interesting to me was all the areas that I had scouted were what I would have done on a general tag. So it was the roadless areas, it was get back deep in the wilderness, it was, you know, just uh, the rougher country and when we got down there, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll take you out where the elk are. And, and so we drive out here, and it's like right off a highway. And he's like, yeah, climb up this ridge and, and get to this glassing point there, and you'll see some elk. And it was out in the flats. It was right off the highway. I mean, it was close, relatively close to town. It wasn't deep in the mountains. That's where the, all the cows were. And it was, it was October 5th was opening day of the season. And man, there was elk everywhere. And they, they weren't back in the wilderness yet. They were all still out in the flats. So that's where the bulls were. So, so yeah, you might have not, you might have missed that had you gone with your original plan. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah, I'm never going to talk any smack about anyone hiring a guide. If they can afford it and it's it makes sense for them, dude, knock yourself out. Even those that are new to elk hunting or haven't had a lot of reps yet, it's not a bad idea. I've hunted with a couple outfitters um, in my early days. There was there were some good ones and there were some terrible ones. So you just have to do your That's homework. True. There are some terrible ones out there, and it's a business. You know, it's a business for them. So you just have to do your uh, due diligence. So tell us the story, man. Like, how did it go down? Yeah, it was it was awesome. We had a great time. So basically, like I said, I got there four days early, scouted. Um, I think the Two days before the season, which was Thursday, I was up on that knob glassing, and I think I saw maybe 12 bulls just from that one spot in the morning and, and evening glass. So there was no shortage of bulls. Ended up, my buddies flew down to Albuquerque, and then they rented a car. And, I mean, they're dedicated friends. So they drive down Friday after work. Uh, they end up coming down there, and, and I think it was Saturday morning, opening day at, like, 3 15 in the morning they roll into camp and me and the guide are up we got the trucks fired up we're ready to go we're like all right guys let's go hunting and they had not got any sleep so they're pounding the, the mountain ops ignite trying to stay awake and we all go up there my three buddies end up going up on that glassing point so they can kind of see what was going on me and the guide went down because we had found a, a pretty good bull i don't know maybe 330 bull uh, that we were going after but he was kind of living on some private ground so 
he was on this maybe couple hundred acre chunk of private and we were able to move in we could hear him bugling but we couldn't see him and then he was still on that private opening day so we didn't get in on him really couldn't couldn't find him as far as on public that day there was a bunch of other dudes that had seen him because it was literally right off the highway where this bull was living at and so there was a few other guys that were kind of circling and, and hunting this bull and so that afternoon we actually got back in there hoping he would pop off that private and he didn't he just stayed on that thing we we didn't see him again i think he's pretty smart yeah smart bull anyways <laughs> But, yeah, so that was opening day. It was kind of uneventful, I would say, to an extent. I mean, the guy did call in a little five-point for me. It, it was a little bit of a, a disappointment. We still had four days left in the season. So that second day, we decided to go up on that glassing point with the with my buddies. So there was five of us that started on that glassing point. We just wanted to see where the elk were and, and kind of make a game plan from there. So first light, we spot a herd probably a mile and a half away, and – they we had seen a couple bulls in there uh, a couple good six points so me and the guy take off and we're hauling ass over there just just running basically to try to get there before they they bed down for the day because it was getting up to maybe 75 80 degrees during the day and they weren't staying out too long but they were they were calling a lot they were pretty fired up as far as the rut goes so so we snuck down in there got the wind right and we could hear him bugling still got within maybe 300 yards and we just set up on a, a little nod where we could see if they, if they ended up moving around into the clearing. So <clears throat> me and the guy are sitting there and I, I think it was probably 45 minutes later. He's like, okay, cows are coming. So that bull's going to be right there behind him or behind the cows. So the cows moved through the opening and I was totally relying on him basically to tell me whether to shoot or not. Cause he knows that he knows the bulls like he shot a lot of bulls in there and knows how big they are because i mean a six point bull to me looks pretty big regardless so i was gonna wait and see if he said to shoot so that bull pops into the opening and he stops it with a cow call at 200 yards it was a rifle tag too i don't know if we, I don't know if we said that or not but it was a rifle tag so he pops in that opening and i asked the guy it's like shooter and he's like yep so I popped three rounds into him real quick and he went down, you know, within like 10 seconds, but you got three rounds off. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wasn't messing around. Dude. <laughs> I just started lighting him up, but I, I hit him all three times right behind the shoulder. I blew out his heart, his lungs. Then I had one a little, maybe a little low, but, um, yeah, I popped him three times and, and it went down. So we got down there and I think he's probably a three, right around 310 bull so he's not huge but dude it's a it's a dandy bull for me like i said this is the first year i ever got a six point and then i got two six points this year so it was it was super exciting and to have all my buddies there to help pack the pack the bull out and uh just the experience was pretty sweet so it's kind of um crazy if you like stop and think about what you've accomplished and then how badass your friends are so, oh yeah, you killed three bulls this year. A lot of guys have never done that, and it's almost mind blowing that I mean, you get so much experience working on elk when you kill three in the same year. Like the cobwebs are gone. Like you really <laughs> know your true. way around a bull. And the other thing is, is your freezer's busting at the seams. Like your family gets hooked up. 
your good buddies Absolutely. get hooked up, and everybody thinks about how cool you are when they're biting into that awesome elk burger <laughs> that they had. And then your buddies, man, like seriously, to fly. I I flew to Albuquerque this year to go see one of my good friends and go shed hunting, and oh nice. And that's not a short flight from Washington, and then just to turn around, rent a car, and drive to the area that you were at. That's no short drive, and then just to like skip out on a night of sleep and go hunting and then help. I mean, you got some great friends, bro. No, I'm super blessed. I, I totally agree. My brother came down and, and then two of my good buddies that I've been friends with for, for 20 years. So that was pretty awesome. And I actually did split that New Mexico bowl with them. You know, we split it four ways so that everybody could get a piece of it. And, yes. And that's totally cool. Cause they put in, like you said, a lot of, a lot of time, money and, and taking a day off of work and stuff. So I appreciate that. Well, let's wrap this thing up with, Chuck, what are you going to do next year for hunting? What are you already thinking? And I know it's not too early. It's never, never too never early, too early. <laughs> to be talking about next year. And then I also didn't get a chance to figure out your fitness level and what you're doing to make yourself between the ears tough as nails besides climbing poles and working overhead on some high voltage. What We got to get cover that too, so don't forget fitness. But yeah, what are you thinking next year, man? Well, real quick, dude, I actually drew a Montana General this year, too, so I'm trying to figure out how to fill that thing still. Oh, time out. But, You're going for four, man. <laughs> well, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Yeah, that's a – I'm probably going to do like – I got the week off before Thanksgiving, so I'm probably going to run over to Montana, do a rifle hunt. I got the, the combo deer elk tag there, so I'm just going to see what I can do. But I, I haven't hunted that either, so it's going to be all new to me, so – see how that goes do you have any clue as to where you're going to go in montana like generally speaking yeah i was thinking just north of yellowstone there's a couple units in there i was looking at and then there's that are general for deer and elk and there's also a unit around augusta that i was looking at maybe just a little west of augusta Mm -hmm. and uh so that's more northwest montana but those are the two areas i kind of got picked out and yeah so i don't know I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'll go check it out anyways. Well, I like like the Gardner area like you're talking about. And anywhere north of Yellowstone is like obviously Grizz country. So pack your bear spray and you'll have a, you'll have a rifle with you. And I don't know when grizzlies den up, but, you know, I've seen black bears out till the like in December. So I don't know. Depends on the snowpack. But there should be some good elk in there. Honestly, there should be some good elk in there and there's some big country where you can get away from people, which sounds like that's your style. That's kind of the clue I'm getting in from all your success. I think, I think that's where I would head. I would steer clear of, uh, anywhere Northwest Montana, unless you want to deal with timber. Um, you know, less density is of elk and you got more wolves, but I mean, it's up to you, but I, I like your first area for sure. And we'll talk more offline fitness. What what does a guy like you do to be ready between the ears and physically? They they're married, they're paired to to kind of hit the mountains as hard as you do. Yeah, so I mean, let's. So as far as the mental aspect goes, dude, I just love elk hunting. So I've been, you know, I as far as when the season shows up, I've been thinking about it for literally a year, and I just feel like I put out a hundred percent effort every day. I wake up, I just want to hunt elk. So that's kind of where my mind's at. And I, I guess, uh, the mental toughness just comes from wanting to hunt elk so bad, maybe. <laughs> so there's, there's that. And then the, the physical aspect, I actually hiked. So I live here right at the base of the Cascades. And one of my buddies that I work with, actually, we ended up hiking, 
about 4,000 vertical feet. There's a few mountains around here that you can do that all the time. So we did that uh, about once a week from maybe June, you know, May, June, all the way till the season. We just did that on a consistent basis. We put 30, 40, 50 pounds on our backs and and do those big eight mile, 4,000 vertical feet incline hikes. And I think that was the key, honestly. I mean, I do ride my bike. I got a trailer behind my house, behind my house here that I ride my bike on a lot. But uh, one of my buddies joked around. He said, he's like, hey, when Dan asked you that, just just tell him to eat a lot of Taco Bell and have a high metabolism because that's pretty much what you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So well, there's no secret, but I do, I do uh, you know, some prep work and, and uh, get after it before the season starts. Dude, if you're eating Taco Bell, I, I feel sorry for your GI tract. Like, <laughs> I just read something where they're like shutting down some of their beef that they've been buying because it's just been such shit beef. And, uh, yeah. I'm not kidding. I just, I just read that. And then, uh, a high metabolism is, you know, your, your time will run out. It will catch oh, up with you. Yeah. Eventually you will get soft eventually. Uh, and you can be skinny fat. I've met plenty, plenty of people that are. And, uh, but if you're going to do 4,000 vertical feet in one hike with a pack on, you'll never be soft, man. Especially once a week. That is that is yeah. really probably what led to your ability and just the I, discipline I to do so that. Too. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty helpful. I think cause I hadn't actually done that much vertical before, as far as prep work before the season, before this year. And I agree. I think it was extremely helpful. So, and I probably just need to get to some of your camps actually. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to get too soft. So well, you might need to teach, too. you might need to teach at my camp. If you kill bull number four this year, on uh, oh boy <laughs> that's that's pretty that's pretty special i really hope you have a lot of luck there um lastly family life financial life like give us a couple best practices when it comes to being a dynamite family man and maybe some of the best your best practices when it comes to finances it could be any little tip but man we'll take it yeah so i feel like uh as far as the family goes i'm super fortunate i got a, a super cool wife and we don't have any kids, so we don't have that complication, I guess, yet. Yeah, you're rich. Um, <laughs> it's, it definitely allows me a lot of time. So she's she's super cool, and uh, you know I take care of her all the rest of the year, so that helps out, too. And, and anything she wants done in the summertime or, or before the season. But she knows some, come September that I'm probably not going to be around much. Um, so that's, you know, that's cool. And then as far as the finances go, honestly, I can – with my job, it's pretty unique that I can work as much, not as much as I want, but I can work a lot most of the year and then take a good chunk of time off. So I, there's a lot of opportunity for overtime, basically. And I'm I'm pretty frugal when it comes to everything besides hunting. I spend a lot of money on tags and gear and, you know, getting prepped. But as far as the rest of my life goes, I don't drive a brand new truck. You know, I don't have car payments. I, I actually take pretty good care of my finances that way. So when it comes to the season, I'm not stressing over, oh, I got all these bills coming in. And I think that's uh, being, being freed up during the season to not, not have to think about all these other responsibilities is really helpful. You nailed it on the head. Trevor, you're a cool dude, man. I want to meet you. I don't know when that's going to happen, but we might do a camp in Vancouver, Washington in May. 
that would be close enough for me to f- figure out how to connect with you. And um, oh, absolutely. I really hope that uh, you reach out to me in November when you get your big bull down in Montana. I usually end the podcast with like, well, where can people find you on social? But we already told you guys, like, he's just got a Snapchat. So what's, is it a handle? And how does Snapchat work? Oh, man, that's a good question. I just have it because my wife has it. I think there is a hand. I think if you just look my name up on there, I think it will pop up. Actually, you can you can search people's names. So if people search my name Trevor Trambley on Snapchat, it'll probably pop up. Yeah, there you go, man. Cool. Well, good luck in Montana. Thanks for taking an hour out of your day to talk elk hunting with us. I know I learned a couple cool things about you, and I just hope there's more guys out there like you because I really relate to guys like you that just work hard and you know just get after it. I love that. So keep it up, bro. Man, I really appreciate the time, Dan. It's been fun. Cool. Hang on. We'll talk Montana afterwards. Guys, thanks for listening. Elk Shape Podcast. Hey, Elk Hunters. Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between, the University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today.